Welcome back to Clear as Quantum, an Equus podcast about quantum science and the way it is changing the world. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we're trying to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, and this week I've been busy trying to automate a teaching lab on antennas. Or should that be antennae? I'm Jacinta, and this week I've been trying and unfortunately failing to build working quantum devices. I'm Tim, and this week I set off an air raid siren in the lab. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, funded by the Australian Research Council. And in this episode, we have a fair bit to catch up on. So the first thing that we need to catch up on are these new voices. Tim, Jacinta, welcome as incoming co-hosts for Clear as Quantum. And boy, do I have some questions. Tim, why do you have an air raid siren in the lab? It's not literally an air raid siren, but I was trying to diagnose why my vacuum chamber was all of a sudden extremely leaky. So we brought out this cool box called a helium leak detector that uh, it sucks on the chamber on one end and then on the other end you can like squeeze out a bit of helium and if it detects helium, uh, a siren goes off. And I was just checking on the left side number one, no. On the left side number two, no. And I, I knew what was probably the thing. It was the thing I'd just been soldering. And I put the helium detector next to it. And the, the whale that the machine produced was so loud that it clipped off and shut itself down to protect itself. Um, wow. <laughs> so um, it sounded a bit like an air raid. So given that it's detecting helium... I'm really hoping that it has a very high-pitched and squeaky sort of sound. Yeah, so it goes up. It goes up relative to the amount of leaks. So it'd be sort of a, a low do, and then if it gets really bad, it'll be do, and it it sort of <laughs> cascaded upwards before, um, you know, turning off. Did you cause an emergency evacuation, Tim? No, but I did turn heads, and that's almost as good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So help help me out a little bit, Tim. What's what are you actually working on the lab? Where are you, where are you at in terms of, of your progression into quantum physics and what brought you here? Okay, I'll start with the easy stuff. I'm at the University of Queensland in the quantum optics lab. Uh, in my project, we're trying to make a computer out of tiny trampolines. It is a hit when I do school visits. It's great. <laughs> we want to make a computer out of technically nanomechanical resonators. So nano means on a billionth of a meter and mechanical, they're vibrating. And if you make a computer out of these things, which look like tiny trampolines, they'd be super low power, which is good for the environment, and super low sensitivity to radiation. So you can put it in space where there's no sunscreen because there's no atmosphere. And Jacinta, you've been trying but failing in your attempt to build quantum devices. (laughs) What sort of quantum devices? There have been many attempts and many different quantum devices that I've been working on. I am only a mere undergraduate, but I do work in several labs in the quantum space at the University of Sydney, which is my home base. It's not too late for you to be sucked wholly <laughs> and entirely into the realm of quantum. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm, I've well and truly fallen for quantum. I'm hook, line and sinker. I'm going to be a quantum computing physicist for the rest of my life, I think. And I've been starting to do that by working on several projects simultaneously. This week, though, I've been trying to work on disordered superconductors and superconducting quantum devices. Now, a superconductor is basically a very special material, which when you bring it down to a very, very cold level, it suddenly has no resistance. 
And this is a property which we can actually use um, to make a quantum device out of. But unfortunately, the fabrication efforts, which is basically just to make the device itself, have not been going to plan. They've been going quite awry lately. <laughs> um, and that can be for many reasons, because the world of fabrication is equally exciting, challenging, and frustrating. You can laugh and cry in the same clean room session, which is what I did today. Wow. <laughs> I mean, fabricating this stuff, you it's sort of you're talking about like mixing ingredients and and what is it thin layers of material is it large blocks of crystals what sort of size and what's the feel do they are they things you can see and touch or are they like only exist in ultra vacuum environments that you can never quite access what i usually do is go into a place called a clean room which is just a very ultra sterile environment the scale of the devices that i'm actually working on are um, nanoscale. So like Tim said, they're 10 to the negative nine of a, of a meter. Um, so they are very small and you can't actually see the quantum stuff that's actually, actually happening on the chip. Um, but the chip itself is about as big as your pinky fingernail. So you can actually see it. And basically what I do with that is put it into all of these chemical processes. I use a lot of silicon processing um, techniques so we basically put it in chemicals, we um, can etch it, we can put resist, which makes stencils on it. I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but these are all different fabrication techniques that you use to be able to pattern features, uh, nanoscale features on that chip. And what I work on is a certain type of heterostructure, which is basically a big silicon wafer, if you've ever seen those six inch things. I cut it up into very small squares, and then I place features on it, using uh, photoresist and a sort of stencil technique, um, using light exposure and, and various lithography features. So that's basically, that's basically what I do. And the superconductor itself is what we call the thin film. So it's a very, very thin layer on top of the wafer. And it has to be excellent, as I have learnt the hard way. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Very unforgiving. As you're talking about stencils and structures, uh, it strikes me that it's just a much cooler and higher tech version of what my my kids who've just started primary school again for the new school year um, <laughs> doing when they go to school, drawing and cutting out shapes and making designs. That's very yeah, true. That's awesome. It's basically an extended craft session. So if your kids wanted to get to their levels of nanoscale, um, they're welcome to become quantum fabrication engineers in the future. They have a bright future ahead. Nice. I was just thinking this week that um, the stuff I've been working on in terms of my chamber and my setting up an optical laser setup, it is about as difficult as Lego, just a bit more expensive. <laughs> but if you can do Lego as a kid, you've got all the skills you need to do experimental lab physics. <laughs> it's a very good analogy, Tim, and it's one that I've used in the past as well. When I finished um, my first research project when I was an, an honours student, was not to do with quantum physics at all. It was to do with the space environment just outside the Earth's atmosphere, where a lot of satellites live, actually. And there's all these charged particles from the solar wind, from the sun. It's a very interesting kind of environment with plasma physics and electrodynamics and all sorts of things. But of course, I didn't get to play with any of the toys. The data that I looked at was all collected five years prior by a satellite that was up there. And at the end of that project, which I did enjoy, I literally said to myself, no, I, I want to find a physics project where I get to play with the Lego 
and play with the toys a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> um, and yeah, I found it. It's it's experimental solid state optics quantum physics. That's <laughs> that's right. Tim, you mentioned you were part of through a PhD. That's a that's an awesome journey, and it's I have discovered at university you, you're often surrounded by people who either have or are getting PhDs and you forget just how cool and and sort of special it is so what journey have you been on to get there did you always know that you wanted to do a physics PhD no um so the journey for me was always wanting to do uh climate science actually growing up and I came towards the end of high school and Still thought, yeah, I, I believe in science and that's what I want to work in. Um, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I certainly didn't want to do a sort of job-specific degree, like try and get into to med or something like that. So I, I did a Bachelor of Science and tried out uh, computer science, environmental science, uh, math and physics, and quickly realized it was the latter two that I was enjoying on the day-to-day. But I only decided I wanted to do honors, which is like that last year of research you can do if you want by the time I got to third year. And then it was only because of that year in honors that I decided I kind of like this. I'll do a, a PhD as well. So it's all been what feels good and, yeah, and yeah. sort of year before decisions. Almost accidental journey, stumbling into the wonderful, the wonderful world of physics. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Just doing, doing what I enjoy. Uh, so far that's worked out. Um, the climate focus is still there. So I am motivated by the fact that we want, low energy computers and yeah in the future i'll probably bounce back in that direction yeah um one of the things that i would like to do in an upcoming episode actually is to maybe look a little bit closer at that specific area what what are the ways that quantum technologies and quantum physicists are actually uh you know making a difference or perhaps poised to make a difference on on some of those issues about the environment and you know energy and some of those big issues. Yeah, I think that's that's super fascinating. Do you think you'll be able to to tackle climate physics easier now that you've done quantum instead of going back and doing climate science as a major? Well, so the reason I turned off, oh gosh, I shouldn't like start off the podcast by trashing other specialties. Um, <laughs> oh no, no, no. I, uh, You're allowed to say negative things about everything that's not quantum. So look, the experience I had of doing some, okay, only a really a small bit of fluid dynamics and climate science research exposure was there's a lot of supercomputing involved in that and it's mostly coding if you're like a a sort of climate modeler um i wanted something i guess a bit more a bit less code software engineering obviously uh and we can talk about this a big positive that people put forward for quantum computing is that we can do optimization on supercomputing problems you know we can model complex chemical interactions we can model probably maybe complex climate physics with the sort of massively parallel processing that a quantum computer can do so that is one way um, we could get there but i think what i'm looking at and i'm quite interested in because i like that hands-on stuff is our quantum sensors are pretty pretty badass these days there was uh we had a guy visiting two weeks ago from Technical Institute Denmark and they do a ton of fiber optic sensing. They do things like measuring the chemicals in a salmon farm or on a person uh, using lasers bound into optical fibers and there's a lot of, I mean, a laser technology is one of the first generations of quantum technologies and 
that distributed really cool sensing is is awesome i think we're quite a ways behind in terms of uh the environment as we are with people you know we can uh predict what 10 million people want to have for dinner tonight in australia using our smartphones and what they've searched for recently but we don't know how many you know koalas are out in one forest for example so yeah i think the world of cool tech and environmental data gathering is is a nice place to go with quantum that's so awesome what i'm what i'm particularly enjoying listening to is just the the excitement of the so many options being open you know for a, oh yeah 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 you i know, mean so like theoretical physics right is like how does the universe work but the other half applied physics is basically just inventing stuff i mean that's our whole job so i, I think <laughs> it's a cool place to work yeah so cool jacinta am i allowed to say that it's slightly i mean you, you've been saying all this stuff you're doing at the university you said you're still an undergraduate student it's holiday time yes yes that's correct it, it, it is semester break um, but I never let one holiday go by without doing a bit of quantum research. <laughs> so this is interesting because, um, you know, I've talked to lots of friends, colleagues, people that have gotten into physics, and some people had an absolutely very clear picture. I, I had a fairly clear picture, I would say, that sort of physics was was a strong interest area that I wanted to head into from you know, maybe maybe middle, maybe early high school, pretty pretty clear. But I've worked with plenty of extremely good physicists who literally weren't even interested at school and only discovered that as a as a bit of a passion area later on. And I guess, you know, for anyone listening, it's a really good point to remind yourself that it's never too late. You know, you don't have to say, Oh, I've missed that boat, I could never be a physicist. Yeah, give it a go if you're interested. But it sounds as if you it was fairly clear for you. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I will reiterate that it's never too late to get into quantum physics, and that's not just to recruit more people into quantum for my own agenda. It's uh, genuinely, it's it's never too late to find the things you love. Um, but I do fall into the opposite category. Actually, I was introduced to it when I was fifteen. I was back in high school. There was a quantum computing open day. It was set up at UNSW by the Australian of the Year at the time, Michelle Simmons, who is still a very prominent quantum physicist. And uh, she brought all of these school kids in. It was a big promotion for especially women in STEM, but also just generally getting school kids interest, interested in quantum physics and quantum computing. It was my first introduction into quantum computing and just seeing the lab going around, walking through the, where the um, scanning electron microscopes were. It was the most magical experience of my entire life. And I will say there was this one point which I decided that quantum computing would be my passion. There was this uh, section of the tour where Michelle and one of her other PhD students were showing how you can actually see as one electron falls into a cavity and then falls out again. You could see that single quantum of, of movement on this graph that was right next to it. And that was it for me. I, I was destined to be an experimental physicist from that day forth. And I did finish school got into university. One of the first things I did was contact my current supervisor, the amazing David Riley, and he was gracious enough not only to give me experience, but to give me an actual job in the quantum computing space at the University of Sydney. And since then, I've just been collecting projects like there's no tomorrow. That's fantastic. I can, I can definitely hear the addiction <laughs> has, has hit you really hard. So. It has hit me, like, hit me like a truck. Oh, that's really cool. Now, isn't that fascinating how there are these really key moments 
that just stand out in the memory? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, do you have any of those moments, Lachlan? Well, I was trying to think as you as you said. So the whole, I, I think I shared a version of this um, at the beginning of last season's last season of this podcast. But my specific journey into quantum physics literally started with with having to write a what's my area of interest on a little application for a student travel bursary to go as an undergraduate student to go to an AIP, Australian Institute of Physics Congress, you know, a meeting of all of the physicists working at unis in Australia. And I was sitting there as, you know, I I was probably a second year student and I thought, well, I can't just write the word physics as my area of interest because I'm a physics student. That's That's sort of stating the obvious. What can I think of? And I just remember thinking, oh, I'll write quantum computing. I've, I think that sounds pretty awesome. And literally that led to an invitation by one of the people um, who, who was on the panel that looked at those, those application forms come in. That he, he invited me down to, to have a lab tour of his lab at ANU in Canberra. And then a few years later, that same person was my PhD supervisor for my PhD project. And yeah, that was where, that was where I, I jumped straight into the, the quantum architectures in glowing diamonds. And that's, that's absolutely set the direction that my my physics interest and research career has, has taken since. So, yeah, it's it it's funny when I think back on it. I just think how ignorant I was about quantum computing when I wrote those words in that little box on the form. I can't have known anything really useful at all. You know, it's not ages and ages ago. I'm not. I don't think I'm quite that old. But it's long enough ago that quantum computing was not a thing that really featured in a physics. Uh, you know, undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Science. Quantum physics did, but very little discussion of quantum computing. Whereas, you know, I know how much that's changed because I now lecture a course on quantum information science. And so, you know, the 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 content is is becoming more and more mainstream year by year. Who was that, by the way, at ANU? That was, that was Professor Neil Manson, who um, is an amazing guy, just a really amazing mentor of mine and of a number of other people that I know. He was close to retirement when I was his PhD student, and that was a, almost a bonus on the whole experience because I was his only research student for, for most of that time, and it meant that I had just worked one-on-one, you know, literally like learning to be a Jedi master. Uh, you know, you just you just spend all that time one on one absorbing the ways of the force, and that, that's what it felt like. <laughs> Tim, I have to ask because I've I've talked to many students who are doing physics PhDs, and the second year slump is a thing that I've given a name to because it's so frequently observed. Are you in or perhaps through the second year slump? I am in the middle bit, so I should be slumping right now. It was only a few weeks ago. I was lamenting to my office mate at how slow my experiment was coming together and then he said well actually it's pretty normal for the first two or three years for somebody to making a new experiment for that thing to actually happen in in the US where they have more time for their PhDs it could be you know five years and then you you actually start taking data on that new thing that took you years to build it's pretty Mm. hard in physics we can't just buy the machines we build everything so yeah I don't think I'm slumping. No, you don't. I, I've I've definitely heard slumps before. You don't sound like don't a student sound like who's I'm in the slump. Cool. No, so. I'm way too upbeat. <laughs> the air raid siren woke me up. I mean, a PhD is a it's a unique experience because you never you're almost never again spending that period of time with such a such a dedicated single focus on a single task, right? Um, 
you know, when you're a school student, you've got all these different subjects you're balancing out. When you're a uni student, you've got, you know, the semesters and you've got different courses, you know, at undergraduate level, suddenly you hit PhD and it's like your entire life revolves around this, this one particular project. And then at the other end, you, you know, whether you go into the industrial workforce or perhaps try and pursue more academic stuff, you, again, you end up, you know, managing a project here and having to handle something else there. And so it is that, I think, very cool experience. Yeah, if I can, if I can to any listeners out there who are wondering whether they should do a physics PhD, I want to give a real plug. Absolutely, everyone should do a physics PhD. <laughs> it's your monomaniacal fantasy. Yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> a lot has happened in the world of quantum science since we last released a Clear as Quantum episode. So we really have to have just a, a little bit of a catch up. And the, the story that I want to talk just briefly about is one that's now received a lot of airtime. Of course, it's the awarding of the Nobel Prize in physics for 2022 to three physicists for their work on quantum entanglement. And I'm sure many of you, if you're, if you're interested enough in quantum to be listening to this podcast, you may well have already heard some good reports about this Nobel Prize. I wanted to highlight one detail that I hadn't stopped and considered enough. All three of the scientists were advised in their early research career stage, Tim, Jacinta, they were advised when they were you guys, don't do this quantum stuff. It's not real physics. <laughs> it's, it's kind of half weird philosophy. It's kind of, you know, real physics is building things, semiconductors and radios and communication devices. Don't sacrifice your career just by, you know, and, and they were ad literally advised this sort of stuff. It sounds so, so strange to our ears today, but it highlights that quantum physics has definitely not been, although it's been part of physics, you know, since the early 1900s, it spent a lot of that time sitting on the fringes as a kind of curiosity that you would over a conference dinner have a vaguely sort of philosophical debate about, you know, what do you, what's your interpretation of the Schrodinger equation and, you know. And I hadn't really stopped to appreciate that. It was quite, to me, that's one of the most striking things about the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics is that it, it represents uh, an absolute transition for quantum science itself out of the periphery into the kind of the, the center of, um, of a lot of the exciting things that are attracting, you know, research money, investment money, the keen... Students, you know, Jacinta, the fact that, that this topic could captivate you as a school student, that's part of this same story. It's, it's part of this transition where, where quantum is becoming very, very real and tangible. And I think a, a large part of this is that for so long, the ideas were relatively straightforward to write out as equations on a blackboard. But they could only ever be thought experiments. You, you couldn't dream of actually trying to do any experimental physics. And a I note with interest that all three of us seem to be experimental physicists, and it's it is only the it is only the last few decades where um, that's really been opened up, and that's exactly what this Nobel Prize was recognizing. Some of the people, the really key people in those early days of who who actually sort of almost went out on a limb and said, "I'm I'm going to try this experiment. I think it can be done. If it can be done, it will yield fascinating results that really have high impact on." the world, but also on, on science and physics and, and the way we understand things. Um, so yeah, I absolutely applaud the, the Nobel Prize last year for entanglement. I think it's fantastic. 
I do love this Nobel Prize. Probably if I was still at school, this would have been the thing that had led me into the field. Um, have either of you ever met or crossed paths with physics Nobel laureates, people that have won the physics Nobel Prize? Not the physics. I can only say I've met the Nobel Pro uh, laureate in chemistry once. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but I suspect you have a story. Oh, I have just a couple, but they're, they're all, as these stories often are, they're sort of just coincidental. When I, when I was a PhD student, we did have one school colloquium that was presented by um, a Nobel laureate, Stephen Chu, I think is his name. That was pretty cool. And then, of course, not that long after I left ANU, the astrophysicist Brian Schmidt at ANU was awarded, was a recipient of the Nobel Prize. He's now the vice chancellor of the university. So there's a little bit of a fun Australian connection there as well. But I've also heard at, at a seminar, I've heard Alain Aspey, one of these three 2022 recipients. This would be probably 15 years ago. So it was absolutely well and truly before he was a Nobel laureate. And it was before he was recognized in this way. But even 15 years ago, he was extremely highly regarded in in our field uh, by people that did know what quantum science was and where it was heading and what it was doing. Um, yeah, Alain Aspey was just um, one of the giants. So it's not at all surprising to see him honoured in this way. Alain is one of the he's one of the advisory research advisors for um, Equus, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, we he's a bit booked out last year. He was going to come down for our usual workshop which but um yeah winning a Nobel prize does terrible things to your timetable <laughs> <laughs> i'd be willing i'd be willing to cop that sacrifice i think tim <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i was going to say i don't think i've spoken to any of them i have spoken to brian schmidt he was just a an astrophysicist and lecturer um he wasn't a fancy Nobel laureate when when i was around anu he was when i was there he I um all my Nobel stories are Brian Schmidt related, as he's affectionately known down in Canberra. <laughs> I don't have any good personal ones. A friend of mine found his ID card at the local bar once. That was amusing. <laughs> um, and I did graduate with his son, who did uh, physics honors. I guess would that be big steps to follow into? But he yeah, not in astrophysics, but nice guy. Right. He's graduated now. Um, there's two Schmitty, Mr. Schmitty physicists out there. Yeah, so what else has been happening in the world of quantum in the last year while, while this podcast has not been releasing new episodes? Did you hear about the physicists at Caltech who were able to create a wormhole out of a quantum computer? I didn't hear about it in detail. But being quantum computing, you were obviously right on top of this. You were reading everything about it, Absolutely. I'm guessing, Jacinda. E even more than you think, just because the basis of the quantum computer they had was a superconducting one. And it, that is my true love in life, superconducting quantum, quantum devices and circuits. I actually heard about this the first time. It was not actually through a colleague. It was through my, my wonderful brother, who loves this sort of thing. And he, he is very, very scientific-minded. And he raised this to me and he said, Jacinta... Look, they've made a wormhole out of a quantum computer. Why can't you do that with yours? But what I really found interesting about this whole paper was that the wormhole was an emergent property, which basically means it arises as a, as a symptom of the superconducting circuit that they were building. So they didn't necessarily strictly build a wormhole that was observed, um, but they did make a system where 
you can actually use it as a test bed for marrying the two biggest battling fields in physics, which is quantum physics and general relativity. Well, I just thought it was, it was super interesting in the way that they did it. And of course, I have a very personal relationship with the superconducting part. It was a massive headline. It's such a sci-fi sounding it is, thing to be able to write about. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. If you want to, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to hear more about that, then get in touch with us and we'll find someone fun to interview about that work. That sounds, that sounds really, really cool. The other one that jumped out at me, I, I, it's such a steady stream of, of records being broken. The number of qubits in a quantum computer. Every couple of months, it seems like someone has some new architecture, some new system where they've scaled it up bigger. And the, the one that I could find was um, IBM announcing a, a new quantum computing architecture with 433 qubits. So if listeners are following along at home, you can make sure that you've kept up with that one. We're well and truly heading out into the realm where our quantum computing prototypes and devices are either at or already surpassed the level where we can even verify them, that they are doing what we think they should be doing by comparing them back against a classical computer reference calculation. Even that's a cool challenge. It's absolutely right. Uh, I do remember reading about the IBM 433 quantum bit processor and the one line that really jumped out at me was the number of classical bits, so non-quantum bits, that you actually need to represent one state on the this new processor um, actually exceeds the total number of atoms in the known universe. So I think that's a good <laughs> description of how we are really achieving quantum supremacy more and more every day. Yeah, that's such an incomprehensible comparison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like it's worth pointing out as well that for the viewers who are interested, um, these large companies getting involved has produced a large amount of relatively easy to read and get engaged with material out there. I know IBM, you can go on their website and start doing some quantum software writing. You can, you can write some quantum algorithms and learn how they work and how they sort of compare to conventional software. Um, so... There's a lot of infrastructure out there, not just investment in the technology, but also in the publicization of, of what they're doing. So it's, it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. That's a really good point, Tim. Um, you've now sparked my interest. I'm going to get off this recording and go and, and, go and have a look at some of that myself. <laughs> you mentioned the Australian Institute of Physics Congress that you went to as, um, as a second year, Lachlan. So we had our long-awaited post-COVID Congress in December in Australia, and there was a lot of quantum there and a lot that I hadn't heard of. Uh, time crystals, that's another really science fiction sounding uh, phrase. So a crystal is you have a, a repeating sort of, imagine like a diamond, it's sort of repeating structure in space. Well, a time crystal is that, but in, in time instead. <laughs> in 2012, uh, I think it was a Nobel laureate uh, said this should exist. And it took them about a decade to come up with an experiment that would show it did. Sort of like how the, you know, Bell's inequality experiments that got the Nobel Prize last year took, you know, years and years to come out before they, after they did the theory, um, positing that it would happen. Sometimes it takes a while to sort of make the idea happen in reality. So it's really cool to see. They had a whole subsection of the conference dedicated to time crystals, a focused session of different speakers. So... I know, it was really cool to see that A, this is happening, and B, like it's it's a bunch of experiments in different 
methods of achieving this quite uh, hectic new <laughs> kind of system. I think it helps when you pick a good name, Time Crystal. But it's it's quite cool. So I'll, I'll put that down as my interesting find of the year. <laughs> That's awesome. I have just one other headline that I found, and I have not had time to dig into this, um, but it was talking about physicists having created a, a funky new quantum material that exists in two dimensions of time. Um, and I'd never even stopped to think about the fact that everything else I've ever thought of was just one dimensional in time. Um, so what would it be like for something to have to exist in 2D time? I'm not sure. Uh, I'd like to leave that hanging in your mind, listeners, just because if you if you're brain wasn't blown open already by the things that we've talked about it needs to be so there you go go away and ponder 2d time well i hope that you've enjoyed everyone getting to hear a little bit about jacinta and tim i've enjoyed it as well we're going to have a huge amount of fun coming up in some more episodes of clear as quantum we hope that in this podcast we can make things as clear as quantum or perhaps even clearer to learn more about quantum physics explained by experts and students in the field, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and share this with friends and family, especially if they're students who are ready to be addicted to the wonderful world of quantum. And until next time, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.